All right, so let's look at this verse here. Now, the point and what we are saying is this. So everything that I have been telling you from chapter 1 through chapter 7 is this. And we could even narrow it down a little bit if we wanted and said really chap- at, the, at the end of chapter 4, he introduces the priesthood, uh, and that becomes a big theme with Aaron and then um, uh, Melchizedek in chapter 7. So we could look at it there, but I think what he is saying as he's preaching is saying, here's, let me just recap for you. This is the main point. This is what I want you to understand in this sermon. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We have one who sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven. When we see, uh, there's a couple things. In this verse, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it because we actually unpack it in the following verses. Uh, So to not move forward too quickly. But a couple couple thoughts that I want to point out. is one, you see that he's sitting at the right hand. This is a place of, of honor, right? To, who gets to sit at the right hand of Jesus? That's what the disciples were arguing over. Because it's a place of honor. It's a place of authority. God's right hand throughout the Old Testament, he says, I will raise my right hand, is oftentimes referring to the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, which is Christ in the Old Testament, who does his work. So you don't want the hand of the Lord to be raised against you but you do want to be saved by the hand of the Lord. So this right hand theme is prevalent throughout the, the scriptures. The other thing that's really important is to see that he's seated. Now why, what's strange about this? He's not standing in judgment. Okay, that's good. What else? finished he's through that's good because and i want to connect those two things because i think you, you, you hit two sides of the same coin that that's really good because he's a high priest the high priest was never allowed to sit down when he was serving in the temple in the sanctuary he could not sit down to because to be seated is to be in a posture of rest But as long as the sacrificial system was going on, the high priest, when he's serving on the job, could never sit down because they were waiting for something to come, right? So even that posture of him standing, as we read the Old Testament, see the priest moving back and forth and offering these sacrifices and not being able to sit down, even that begins to play a tune for us that says, this this isn't quite right. they're, They're not really experiencing the rest that we even saw in creation with Adam, the first priest of the first sanctuary, which we'll get into in a little bit. But the fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand, one, he's no longer standing in judgment. Two, the sacrifice is done. It's over. And now we sit and we are welcomed in to this Sabbath or eighth day new creation, this rest that comes in Christ. And he's sitting at the throne of the majesty in heaven. As we continue through chapter 8 and into chapter 9, the locations begin to matter. So we won't spend a lot of time on it now. But the fact that it's the majesty in heaven, that this is not an earthly sanctuary, uh, really matters. 
and it, it says quite a bit as we move forward. All right, so he continues this thought. The throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. All right? So we see that this is Jesus sitting at the right hand, and he is a minister. So he ha- he's given the title minister. This is a, a really cool word. Uh, the, the best way to, to think about this, the, the Greek word is la, latergos, latergos, okay? And it's where we get our word liturgy from. So, and it comes from two different Greek words put together. One is letos, which is public, laity, if you would. Laity, that's where that idea comes from. And the other word is uh, ergos, which is work. So it's the work of the public, the work of the people. This is the, the work of Jesus is now the one who is standing in the place of the divine liturgy, if you would. He orders all things. Um, in some traditions, they have pastors, when they would give the liturgy, they would stand and they would speak, and we do this to, to a certain degree, they will speak as the mouthpiece of God to the people, right? They speak as the, the uh, they are the spokesmen of God. So we do this when we preach, say, this is God's word over you. But there's also this idea of calling people into the presence of God, that you speak on behalf of God, that God is calling us together. He leads us in our confession. We declare the forgiveness. It's not the priest that declares it, but he, or the priest that forgives, or the pastor that forgives, but he declares this. Um, and then he tells you what God says in the sermon and then invites you to eat God's meal. So he is the mouthpiece of God, and that comes from this word, that this Jesus, this minister in the holy places is the one who is speaking for the people, to the people, leading the people to salvation, to the gospel, to hope and peace and joy and all of that. Okay, so he's a minister in the holy place. He is the one that leads us in the liturgy of worship and life. He tells us, he directs us how we are to live as the minister. And it says that he is the minister in the holy places. What are some holy places in the Bible? When you see that, notice it doesn't say a holy place, singular, but places. The tabernacle, right? So you have the holy place, and then you move a little bit further in, and you have the most holy place. Yep. The holy of holies. Yep. The holiest of the holies. Mountains. As, yeah, if you're here on Sunday. Mountains are sacred spaces. The temple. Tabernacle. Temple, both of which are on mountains. It's interesting. Tabernacle, when they would construct it, it was raised up just a little bit. To, so you had to step up into the tabernacle. So it was a portable mountain. So you had to worship God on mountains. Um, and the tabernacle was a portable mountain. But when they built the temple, they built it on a mountain, the Temple Mount. They did that. Then there's one other, right at the beginning of the Bible, another holy place. It's the Garden of Eden, right? The Garden of Eden is also a holy place. And from the holy place, all of life is to flow from and find its source, its power, its strength, from within that holy place. And we see this in, in Eden, uh, where it had the four rivers that went out, 
all right? The four rivers went out from Eden, and it was to take the, uh, the holy place, the, the, the glory of God's dwelling with man, and take that power to the, to the ends of the earth, right? That's part of the symbolism of it being four rivers. It's four is a cosmic word. You've got the four winds, the four corners of the earth. The cross had the four points. It, there's all this language of fours throughout the Bible that speaks of cosmic relevance and cosmic scale. So you had the four rivers that would flow from the garden, and it would symbolically take the glory of the sanctuary and bring it to the ends of the earth. All right? So if Adam and Eve had not sinned, the idea was that they would advance the borders of the Garden of Eden. So in Genesis, it says, create the world, and in the world, and he gives some geographical locations, he created Eden, and within the Eden, he created a garden, right? So you have these three zones. You have the world, Eden, and then the garden inside of Eden. Then a fifth zone, if you go in even closer, you have the two trees that are at the center of the garden. But if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, they were to expand the borders of Eden to the point where it would be a cosmic garden. And this is what we see in Revelation at the end, right? That we now have this matured garden that is cosmic in scale, and it's not just a garden, but it is a glorified garden. It is a garden city, uh, and it has covered the whole earth, essentially, okay? So this is the idea of what flows from that sacred place is the power to redeem, renew, restore uh, all things to the glory of God. And Adam was created as the minister of that garden. He was the first priest. He was given charge to work it and to keep it, and he was to be the one who advanced the borders of Eden and continue to do the work of the minister that we see Jesus doing here. And they were to have kids, and their kids were likewise to grow up as ministers of the garden and continue to advance those, those borders. But something happened. He sinned, and he was then removed from the garden. And now, instead of advancing life and glory to the ends of the earth, he transfers death and depravity to the ends of the earth. It's really a really an awesome thing. In, in Genesis 1, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, in the six days of creation, you have all of this uh, language of let there be, which we see in our English, let there be light, let there be an expanse, let there be dry ground, and so on. And in the Greek, those are all imperatives. And imperatives are a command, right? So God speaks, and it happens. Creation obeys the word of God. So you have all of these commands the first six days, or first six and a half days, and then when he comes to the last piece of his creation, when he says, let us make, that's not an imperative. It's actually a subjunctive. And what that means, without getting into all the details, is we're going to begin a project here that will continue. Right? He doesn't command it. It doesn't just happen. But rather, I'm going to create, that we're going to start something. Let us Make man in our image. Let us begin this process of creation and let it grow and, and, and mature into the image of God, right? So he creates Adam, and at that point, was Adam an image bearer of God? Yes, absolutely. But Adam didn't fully 
live into, grow into that image. He was to mature. And Adam and humanity and the world itself was to grow into this. <laughs> See, he will grow and mature into the image of his parents. Uh, I think he's okay. The babysitter's chasing him down, so <laughs> he's okay. All right, so let me get us back to where we were. Cre- um, as image bearers, we're to grow up into the image of God, right? And this is what we still do, right? As we mature in our walks with God, we actually image him better. We are to be conformed into the image of Christ and all of that. So this is what Adam's responsibility was. This is what he was to do. And he did this from that sanctuary, from the Garden of Eden. He creates him and says, okay, we're going to begin this project of creating humanity into our image, speaking of the triune God. However, because of sin, what happened was he stepped out of that project, or that project essentially failed, if you would. That instead of Adam growing and maturing into the image of Christ, he is now growing and maturing into death and curse and sin and depravity. And we see this trajectory mainly in the first six chapters, where the fall happens in chapter 3, and by the time we get to chapter 6, it's all gone to hell. It's, it's awful. God says, this, this, there's nothing but evil in the world, and he judges the world through the flood, right? It just goes in the opposite direction. As opposed to growing up into Christ, it grows away from Christ. Babel in chapter 11 is another one of these, these signs. Everything is now messed up, so let's spread them out, um, and so on. So throughout the Old Testament, humanity was unable to further this project along of being in the image of Christ or in the image of God because of sin and depravity and so on. So to remedy this, God sends Jesus, right? He puts on flesh and dwells among us. He is, according to what we read in Hebrews chapter 1, the exact image of God, the exact imprint, full maturity. He is, you can't even, um, you can't, uh, I'm blanking on the word. <laughs> you can't separate it, right? He is the image of God. There, there is no aspect of Jesus that does not reflect or image God perfectly. Then Jesus takes all of humanity's sins upon himself, that thing which keeps us from growing up. He goes to the cross, and he says, Tetelestai, it is finished. Now that word has many powerful theological implications. It is finished. Our sins are forgiven. That is part of it. But when he says it is finished, it is also the project that we started all the way back in Genesis 1.26 of creating man in our image. I have completed that. I am the mature man in the image of God. And now we, in Christ, grow up into that. And this is one of the powerful um, truths and, and, and reality is that Jesus, the minister, is in the holy place. He is the greatest, the great Adam, the one who is to be in the garden and expand the boundaries of that holy place and bring, um, raise humanity up into the image of Christ, but failed. Now Jesus, the second Adam, is the minister, the one who leads us in the liturgy of growing up into Christ, growing up into his image in the holy places. Okay, that was a lot for those 
those two phrases. Are there any questions on that before we move on? I should have paused in the middle. Okay, well, either it made perfect sense or you have no idea what I'm talking about. So, <laughs> uh, any points of clarity on that? Jesus is the perfect image of God that we are in Christ, and now, for us today, we are to mature and grow in the image of Christ. And the reason that that is possible is because he is the minister. He's the second Adam. He is the one who is in the holy place, who has taken care of our sin, and now we are fused with him. We are his body, and we grow. Uh, we walk this life, this liturgy that he leads us in and grow into the image of Christ into full maturity. Okay? And he does this in this holy places, Eden, tabernacle, temple. He does this in the true tent, right? The true tent. The true tent, this word tent here, uh, that is the Greek word for tabernacle, right? So it's not like a camping tent. It is, he's referring to the true tabernacle. Uh, and we see this in verse 5. I'll skip ahead to it. Um, yeah, talking about Moses. When Moses was about to erect the tent, this is referring to the tabernacle, uh, he was instructed by God saying, make sure you do this according to the pattern. This is an exodus that he gets the directions for building the tabernacle, and here he calls it a tent. All right, that was, I was going to go to this verse, but I forgot on the screen. So this is the project that begins, right? Create man in our image, let him take dominion of all things. It's another cool thing. True humanity was to have dominion of all things. And the resurrected Christ, having accomplished it, what does he tell his disciples at the end? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He, he finished it. He, he accomplished the project, right? He is the true man, the true God-man, the, the mature one who has been given dominion over all things. And now he says, now go get it for me. <laughs> go make disciples. Bring it all in. It's all mine. Everybody out there, is, they're just squatters in my kingdom. Now you go and take dominion of it through preaching the gospel, teaching, baptizing, and so on. All right, any, any thoughts overall on chapter two? Oh yeah, we didn't even get to the true tent. Man, I'm getting ahead of myself. So the true tent, that, that the Lord has set up, not man. Okay, so the true tent, the true tabernacle, uh, which he develops more in, later on, is the one, uh, not true as in, you have a true and a false, right? You have true as in the original. The, um, the <laughs> yeah. I was looking on, on the internet. Do you guys know who Vincent Van Gogh is, the artist? He has all those swirly paintings. You can get some pretty cool Van Gogh paintings, like hang up in your living room, for like less than 50 bucks online, right? He has the one, the plowman in the field, and he's like, it looks like he's, in the field of wheat, and it's, it's got that style that Van Gogh has. Well, the original of that just sold for $111 million. $111 million. But we can have it on our wall for less than 50 bucks. In fact, you can go real cheap, you just print it out on your printer and tape it on your wall. Hey, that's Van Gogh, all right? <laughs> so you look at that, the one that I might have on my wall or you might have, or if you're looking in an art book and you come to a Van Gogh, would you point at it and say, oh, look, that's Van Gogh. Say, no, no, that's false. No, it's, it's not false. That's, that's Van Gogh's painting, this picture. But is it the original? 
Well, no, the original's worth $111 million, probably in some high secure place. Uh, but you wouldn't say that this is a false painting, that this is not really Van Gogh because it's not the original. That's more what he's talking about with the true tent. That the true tabernacle, the one that the Lord set up, that is the $111 million tabernacle. The one that Moses set up was the $50 one. Very real, very effective, and, and, and it was done right, but it's a copy. It's a shadow. It's, it's, you press, yeah, you press copy on the machine. It comes out like, oh, here's another one. And that's what Moses was to do. But he had a design. God gave him a design of the true tabernacle, the original tabernacle that the Lord himself set up, not man. Because when he gave it to Moses, men had to set it up. But the one in heaven, God set up himself. Okay? All right. Any questions on that? There's a fire hose tonight. I apologize. Chapter, verse 3. He goes on, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice. Thus, it is necessary for this priest, this priest is speaking of Jesus, this priest also to have something to offer. So, every high priest had his own sacrifices and gifts that he had to set up. We see this uh, in a lot of detail at the beginning of Leviticus. The first seven chapters walk us through different offerings. And sometimes you're to bring a bull. Sometimes you are to bring a sheep. Sometimes you are to bring grain. Sometimes if you can't afford the bull or the sheep, then you bring a, a turtle dove. If you don't, have enough, you don't have enough money for a turtle dove, then you just bring some flour, right, and a little bit of oil, and you offer that. You have the minka offering, which is you basically go make cakes and you bring it to God. And you can make them at home and grill them up on a, on a skillet yourself or you can bring the ingredients and do it there. And they have all these wonderful patterns on how you are to handle the, the sacrifices, which are really cool. Um, but you had, the, the priests were, were charged to bring gifts and sacrifices to God. That, that's what they were to do. Um, uh, okay, I'm going to, no, I don't have time. Yes, I do. Okay, so this part is really good. <laughs> At the very beginning, you have the, the, the burnt offering in Leviticus 1. Okay, the burnt offering is uh, a better understanding, the, better translated as the ascension offering. For some reason, in English, we take the word um, ola in, in Hebrew, which means to ascend, and we translate it by the way it's, the action is done, which is a burnt offering. Okay? So instead of saying a, uh, a ascension offering, which is literally what it says, we translate that as a burnt offering, which is unfortunate because we miss it. But what would happen is that the priest is to, to take the animal, the, the worshiper brings the animal in and says, I need to be with God, right? This is the whole point of sacrifices and so on is for us to be with God. The whole point of Jesus' sacrifice is so that we can be with God. And you bring this, the worshiper, which would be you and I, right? We bring this, uh, this animal in, and we would lay our hands and lean on the animal. And what we would do is we would ordain that animal as a, uh, as a priest for us, <laughs> a priest that can go into the presence of God on our behalf. Because that's the whole point of the sanctuary, is that we'd be able to be in the presence of God. But after Adam and Eve sinned, they were kicked out, and the cherubim was there with the flaming sword, 
and says, you cannot enter, right? So you would take the, the animal and you would lean on it and you put your hand on its head and you would ordain it as a priest on your behalf and transfer essentially your sin to it. You would then take the animal and you would slice its neck and the blood would come out. And then at that point, the priest would come over and begin to help you take it over the fire, carve it up, and offer the sacrifice. And the smoke would go up and that smoke would go up and Leviticus says that God would breathe it in and it was pleasing to him. He would, he would eat it. And then we get to eat the meat together, right? So you've got this kind of, um, my, the teacher at Theopolis, he had this little jingle for it to help us remember. He goes, you lean the hand, you slay the, you slay the beast, you sla- uh, splash the blood, you cook the meat, then you eat the meat, right? That's the whole process. You lean the hand, ordaining it as a priest, you slay the beast, you take the blood, you splash it on the altar, then you cook the meat, and then you eat the meat. And that is the process of what takes place. Then we go back and say, well, why is that necessary? Well, because we need to be in the presence of God. And if we were to run back into Eden and dwell with God, saying, God, I'm coming back into the sanctuary, what would happen to us? We would get cut up and burnt up because of that flaming sword. We would be that sacrifice. We would die. So now we ordain this priest, this four-legged priest to go on our behalf into the presence of God so that I might be with him. Uh, and this is the, the gifts and the offerings that the priest would bring. Then he says, thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now Jesus is all of these things wrapped up into one. He is the priest. He goes on behalf of the worshiper. He's the ordained priest. He is torn apart, if you would. He is crucified. The blood is on the altar. He ascends to God, ultimately, on our behalf. Right? He takes our, our sin to the grave and ascends on our behalf. What did Jesus offer? He offered himself, and he was the perfect sacrifice, the final sacrifice. So we no longer have to lean the hand and slay the beast and splash the bud and cook the meat and eat the meat. We don't have to do that anymore because Jesus did all of that on our behalf, and he took us with him into the presence of God. So now we have this great high priest in the heavenly places. He, we are there with him. He intercedes for us. He mediates for us, and so on. So he offered the perfect sacrifice. He was on. Now, if he were on earth, if Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. This verse is basically saying, now if Jesus was the priest of the earthly tabernacle, the copy, the, the $50 version, he wouldn't be a priest at all because according to the law, you had to be a Levite. And Jesus wasn't a Levite. He came from the tribe of Judah, which is David's tribe, the kingly tribe. But he's after the order of Melchizedek, who is both a priest and a king. So Jesus now is this hybrid priest-king that if he was on earth, he wouldn't be able to because he's from Judah. So but he transcends the law. He glorifies the law. So he is in heaven as our high priest. All right. Now, if he was, yeah, if, since according to the law. Okay, so verse five. They serve a copy. This is talking about the old priests, right? And I like that word, copy. I've said that a couple of times, right? They serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things, Right? 
So that beast that they would lay on, that was actually a copy or a shadow, the $50 version of the real thing, the real sacrifice, right? Which is Christ himself. Serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. All right? So this pattern, this, the word for pattern is typos in Greek, which is where we get the word typology from. Uh, and it's a pattern. It is, it is something that represents or echoes or kind of um, has the same tune as something greater in the Bible. Um, so you see, if you look at the life of Moses, uh, you read his life and you follow what he did, and then you read the life of Joshua, you see, wow, they do a lot of the same things. That's because Joshua is a type of Moses, right? We see Adam in the garden, the, the high priest of the sanctuary, sinless and all of that for a moment. Uh, and then we see Jesus, high priest of the holy place, the sanctuary, and Paul himself says he is the second Adam. He's a pattern. He's a type, okay? So both very real, but one points toward the other, if you would. So you are to set this up according to the pattern that I have given you on the mountain. So according to the pattern, the thing that God said, it's, it's like God pulled back the veil for Moses to see into the sanctuary of God, where God sits on his throne and what he saw was the tabernacle, something like the tabernacle, something really close. And God actually gave him dimension. This is how you recreate this, where true, eternal, constant worship takes place. You recreate this on earth by following these instructions. And then Exodus 21 through 30, and then after that, you have all of these instructions on how to build the tabernacle according to the pattern that he was given. Thoughts or questions on that? Verse 6. But as it is, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises all right but as it is christ has obtained he's been given this ministry this high priest a minister the leader of the liturgy of life on how we are to live and order our lives he's been given uh, uh, obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old right jesus is a better high priest a better sacrifice a better temple he's better at all of that but the ministry overall of Jesus and this new covenant that, that we are part of because of his blood, this, this covenant that we have is so much better than the old. So much better because it has better promises, right? And he's about to quote Jeremiah from Jeremiah 31, and that's where he gets into what are these better promises. Why is it better that we are in Christ today as opposed to being a follower of Yahweh under, under the old covenant. Why is it better? He gets into that in just a moment. Um, but he is the mediator. I like that word, mediator. Um, the covenant that he mediates is better. If, if, if you could 
think about a mediator, even in an argument, right? Um, let's say Amanda and I get into an argument about something, and Carrie says, wait, 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 everybody calm down. She would then act as the mediator and say, okay, you're saying this, you're saying that. Now, how do we translate and mediate this, this argument, right? That's not, and when we think about mediator, it's almost always in a negative connotation like that. But he mediates a far better covenant. So it's something really great and actually far greater than we can even perceive or understand that he mediates. So, uh, you know, the posture of Jesus on the cross, I think, kind of helps with this a little bit. That you see Jesus with his arms stretched out on the cross. And imagine with one hand, he's holding on to humanity and us his bride, his people, the children of God, who we cannot come into the presence of God without a mediator, right? We would get cut up and burnt up. That'd be like us trying to run back into Eden with that cherubim with his sword. We don't get to do that without a mediator. So Jesus holds on to his people, and then on the other hand, he's holding on to all the glories and blessings and promises of God that God has for his people. And he holds these things in perfect, in his perfect grip. And then the Spirit of God goes back and forth and he intercedes for us. And every prayer that we have, we pray in, we pray in Jesus' name. The reason we say that is we're, we're saying this according to our mediator. Like, Jesus, let this be your, your words as you mediate for us. Right? So we, our Father, we pray to you in Jesus' name. And we should be praying by the Spirit and, and, and all of this, right? So you've got the whole triune God. But he's mediating. He is the, the avenue in which all the promises of God, all the blessings of the new covenant are given to us. And that's why we can have so much confidence. Because Jesus is not letting go of either one of those. So our assurance, our rest in this covenant, in, 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 um, in our salvation comes by not our ability to be worthy to come into the presence of God, but our security comes with the fact that Jesus himself is holding on to us. And he is God, and he is our mediator. And he is, it is by his blood that, that this covenant is real. So the effectual nature of his blood is what guarantees our salvation. It's just so relieving <laughs> to realize, man, my salvation is wrapped up in, in Christ mediating on my behalf. So for me to fail at my salvation is actually for Christ to fail. Now, we say that from a very theological perspective because Hebrews is also full of the warnings that say, if you're really a, a follower of God, then you will be maturing and so on in, in the warnings. But our, our hope and our confidence is not in our ability to be holy and come into the presence of God, but on the blood of Christ who mediates for us. Better promises. It says in verse 7, for if the first covenant had been faultless, if the first had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Right? So if the first covenant, covenant of Moses, the law, if that had been excuse me, faultless, there would be no need for a second one. If that was based on the better promises with the ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate priest, there would be no reason to look for something new. But Jesus is better. This covenant is better. His blood, the sacrifice, all of that is better. The old, we'll see later on in chapter 9, was unable to cleanse the conscience. 
right? We could bring in the sacrifice and say, thank God that this animal has gone on my behalf into the presence of God and was cut up and burnt up everything I deserve. Um, but I, I am still twisted and messed up and my, I can't have a clean conscience because I've still sinned. I am still a sinner. And that, that curse is still, it grips me, right? But what Christ has done is he has come and he has totally cleansed us. He, hasn't, he didn't make us perfect as far as we no longer do bad things, obviously, but he has cleansed the conscience. That when I stand before God, I stand as a justified man. You stand before him as a justified person, one declared righteous from top to bottom and all the way through. He has cleansed the conscience. So the old was unable to do what the, the new and the better one has done. All right. We will. Are there any questions on that part? We've got Aaron. Yeah, for if the first covenant had been faultless, yeah. No, it wasn't, it wasn't flawed as far as, I mean, God designed it, right? And he, he, he put it in place. But it wasn't, it couldn't get us back to that Genesis 126 image bearing that we were created for. It was unable to do that. It, was, it could only take us so far. And Paul talks about this. He says the, the law is like a tutor that led us to Christ, right? The pedagogy, that teacher that took our hands, and he could only walk so far. He couldn't walk us into the presence of God, right? But he could take us to Christ and say, okay, now, now for them to go there, to that sanctuary, the holy place, God himself would have to do the work, that Jesus would do that in a new and better covenant, one that is able to take us all the way through. So in that sense, it was faulty because it wasn't eternal. Yeah. I mean, you, there's no way you can understand what Jesus, Jesus is saying without the Old Testament. And to your point, I think the book of Hebrews illustrates that for us. Especially chapters, I mean, he talked all about an Old Testament priest in Melchizedek. I mean, the whole thing has been about the Old Testament. Without Old Testament categories, we don't have any categories for Jesus. We don't understand what his priesthood means if we don't see the Old Testament priest. We don't understand what his kingship means or a sacrifice, or a temple. Yeah, if, if we, as Andy Stanley would like us to do, unhitch from the Old Testament, we then lose 
all understanding of the new. We can't do it. We can't do it. Not only that, but the Old Testament, again, I mean, Jesus, he gives the first, his first uh, Sunday school lesson after the resurrection is to teach his disciples how to read the Bible, how to read the Old Testament. He showed them everything, and the law and the prophets, all the things that pointed to him, where he was found, how all of this works, and it says that their hearts just burned within them. Right? So even his very first lesson, he says, all right, disciples, this is what you do. You don't unhitch from the Old Testament. In fact, you, got, you dive deeper into it because I'm everywhere in the Old Testament. And you will see that that was not an end because it's um, without Christ has fault, not in the moral sense, but it's, it's not able to bring us all the way to God. You see all of this as being fulfilled in me. Now, when you read the Old Testament, we read it as talking about Jesus. This is how we are to read the Old Testament. So we actually have a huge portion of our Bible that is to teach us all about Christ that we think is strange and void and that he's not there. But that's first Sunday school lesson. Read the Old Testament and it will tell you all about me. <laughs> and that's what we get to do, which is a lot of fun. And Hebrews teaches us how to do that. Good thought. Other questions before we jump into the Jeremiah passage? Okay. We have like 30 minutes for questions after this. So I hope you're just storing them all up. All right. Verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, so Aaron, this actually helps answer your question a little bit. Now he quotes Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 through 33 or 34. He says, behold, the days are coming, all right? The days are coming. So from Jeremiah's perspective, they're not here yet, but the days are coming. There's something coming, something good, declares Yahweh, the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. It's not like that. He's mostly talking about Moses in the context of Hebrews here. Not like the one I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the Exodus story with Moses and the people of God. They did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. And by showing no concern, it wasn't that he just, I don't care about you at all. It wasn't that. It was, uh, you don't get to come near me. Right? If you, don't, if you don't walk faithfully in this covenant, you don't get to come into the sanctuary. And we see when Israel would go astray, they started sacrificing to other gods. They didn't have that ordained priest to go into the presence of God, and that was part of God's judgment upon them. Romans 1 talks about that, that he handed them over to their desires and so on. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Instead, I put them into exile, taught them a lesson, then he would bring them back because he is faithful. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So now, this is the better one. This is the new one that's coming. In those days, so now you have previous days, they're looking forward these days. 
I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Where was the law written in the Old Testament? On stones. And those stones were put into the Holy of Holies, right? So now I'm not going to write it on stones, but I'm going to actually write it on their hearts. And I'm going to put my law into their minds. And that word law, think about it as instruction. That's a better way to understand the word law is instruction rather than like Wichita has laws, speed limit laws, things like that. It's, it's not so much that. There's some of it, but mostly it's God's instruction on how to live according to the plan of Genesis 1.26, how to live as an image bearer. I'll put their, my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? Why would they not do that? For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Then verse 13. And speaking of a new covenant, this is no longer quoting Jeremiah, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is, beginning, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. All right? So the new covenant, when it comes, that is inaugurating, beginning the process of the old one going away. We talked about this earlier in the book. Um, if you remember that overlap where you have the old covenant going like this, where you have, um, say, the ten words or the ten commandments here. Uh, the beginning of the old covenant with Moses. And then Jesus comes. Whoops. Jesus comes here. He dies here. You have the incarnation here. You have the cross here. But even after, even after the resurrection, we'll put that right here, even after the resurrection, the old is still going on, and, and that's what the writer of Hebrews says, right? It's becoming obsolete. It's not there yet. Because the final end comes here, AD 70, with the destruction of the temple. When Rome comes in and destroys Jerusalem, that's the end of the sacrifices. That is the end of the temple. That is the end of the priesthood. All of it is now gone. And they are no longer able to sacrifice and so on. So from AD 70 and on is just the new covenant. So it's kind of like running a, race, a baton race. You have one runner going and then the next runner starts and they run side by side for a little while as they hand it off and then the next runner continues. Um, that's how the covenants work together there. So that old one is becoming obsolete because he's, he's writing it somewhere in this period here but 8070 hasn't yet come. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Any questions? Any thoughts? The, the new covenant? Yeah. 
So I think that, that is, that's a really good question because you have this very optimistic statement in, in verse 11 when he says that they shall not teach each other and his neighbor. Essentially evangelism seems to come to a close. And why? Because everybody will know. But in the next verse, he says, and I will be merciful toward their iniquity. So there's still iniquity going on. Right? So we have this kind of close of evangelism, what it seems like, and iniquity still being present. I think part of that is what we see the starting in Eden, what should have started with the advancement of, of Eden to the ends of the earth. We have the finished picture in Revelation, and we are now living in that advancement stage. Right? So the fact that the gospel is where it is in Wichita is really incredible. <laughs> You know, seeing that started out in the Middle East by 12 guys that were really bold and preached the gospel. But the Spirit of God just compressed it, and we see the church now growing and moving, and persecution comes, and it grows, and and all sorts of stuff. So I I think we will see um, many years in our future that that work continuing, where we will see uh, the, the kingdom of God take over the world to a certain degree. And the timing of Christ's return in that uh, is one that everybody speculates about. So Revelation, you see that when he comes back, he comes back and there is a bride adorned for her husband. So there is a aspect of that the, the people of God have matured, have grown into that image of Genesis 126. Uh, yet he comes back and there is still judgment. There is still um, a final judgment there. So the timing of it, I'm not 100% sure. But where we are now, I am sure, we are in that stage, like the leaven and the loaf, and it growing, that we are to advance the gospel by doing everything that Adam and Eve were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, so that final, that final judgment and that, the resurrection where we are made like him, just when does that happen? That's, that's the head scratcher. Not for a while, I don't think. So I have a lot of uh, dominion to take, a lot, of, a lot of places to see churches planted and the gospel advance and so on. Good question. Aaron? Um, which, which part? Right. Yeah, yeah. So um, this, in context here, he's speaking of the Old Covenant. So he, he's speaking of Moses on Sinai. Um, so that's the context here. Now, if we were to step back and look at the Bible as a whole, we see lots of patterns, and this is a part of that pattern. All right? So you have... Yeah, the priest, king, and prophet distinctions in the, in the scriptures. And each one of them have a role within the sanctuary or the tent 
right? Um, prophets are uh, divine architects. So when prophets go up on a mountain, God gives them plans. Moses is one of them. Um, Elijah is one of them. Uh, a lot of the prophets, they go to, to God. He's given a plan, and then they come back, and they speak it, and sometimes it's the downfall of, of nations, and sometimes it's the raising of other nations. They speak with us like an architect. An architect. Kings are, uh, they are divine builders, right? They're the construction workers. They build all the boundaries of, of the, the kingdom or the sanctuary and so on. And then the priests, they are divine servants or they, they serve within the, the sanctuary. Um, and so for us, we are priests. We are to serve the body in the sanctuary. We are kings in that we are to advance the borders of it. Um, and there are some as you get older, who become this prophetic figure that is able to help guide us, the, the priests and the kings, toward maturity and so on. But John, he goes up onto a mountain, and then God gives him uh, a blueprint, right, of what the church is to be. So I saw the bride coming down, and then he describes it like a city. So you have this bride city, the city being the people of God or the bride, and, and so on. Good question. Good thinking, too. That's the way you want to read these things, is to say, okay, where else do we see someone going up on a mountain and giving instruction? So that, that's, that's good. Other questions or thoughts? Sure, yeah. So, being created in the image of God, and there's a lot of cool things about why that language would be used. Um, kings, emperors, they would put their image in different villages so that when people come in, they would say, oh, there's an image of Caesar. Rome must rule here, right? And this has been, this has been practiced all the way back. So this image of God language, that kind of helps us understand what God is doing, that he has placed his image upon us, and as we go, the world and those who do not follow him should be looking at us and saying, oh, Christ is king here. Um, this is a, a follower of God. Now, all humanity was made in the image of God, and we are all called to mature and grow, but sin obviously has, has done some damage to that. So Christ, uh, in Christ, is the only way we are able to progress and grow into that image of God, to mature. But as image bearers who do not know Christ, what we see happening is we take on another image. Psalm 136 talks about how they have ears, but they do not hear, noses, but do not smell, uh, mouths, but do not speak, hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. Um, for they have become like what they worship, right? So we become like what we worship. So you, you worship an idol, and you actually become less human. To be, Jesus is the, the one and only true human, the ultimate humanist. <laughs> Humanism, to be truly human, is to be conformed into the image of 
the true human, which is Jesus, the ultimate image bearer. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember, when he was rebelling and God cursed him, he goes, you will become like a beast. And he goes out and he lives like an animal, growing his claws out and drinking the dew of the grass and all of this. Asaph, in Psalm 73, he kind of tells his testimony of, man, my feet almost slipped at the very beginning uh, for I was, I was walking and, and I became envious of the wicked. For they eat and they grow fat and they have money and they have nice clothes and nothing goes wrong for them. Even when they die, there's no pain in it. I really wanted all of that. And then right before the, the turn, and that says, I have become ignorant and brutish. I am like a beast before you. So his image was not growing in likeness to God, but it was becoming less than human, like an animal. And then he turns when he says, and then I went into the sanctuary of God, and I discerned their ways, and they became uh, their end, oh shoot, like a dream when one awakes. Um, so they essentially dissolve from, from this earth. They have no memory here. So I want everything that the wicked are enjoying, but when I discern their end, like a dream when one wakes up, it just kind of begins to go away. That's, that's their end. Um, and then he says, whom have I in heaven but you? On earth there's nothing I desire. So he, he, he changes from becoming less than human. He goes into the sanctuary. He sees who God is. He, per, he perceives the end of the wicked. and says, oh, I, I want God. Even in my suffering, I can become more human, more like God, even in, in this pain. Um, so for, for us to, to mature as image bearers is to look to Christ as the ultimate archetype of humanity, say that's how we are to live. And that's why there's so much language of being in Christ and submitting to Christ and having the mind of Christ. We are to, to conform our entire lives to Jesus. And in that, we are grown and conformed into his image, thus being more humid, human and beginning to fulfill or populate what 126, Genesis 126 was supposed to do. So, does that help? Right. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Right. You are the true you when you follow Christ. Yeah, that's good. What a, what a, a backwards thing, right? Because we have, there's so much literature and messaging to us of saying, man, this, be, be yourself. Be the true you. Buy our product and indulge. Right, yeah. Yeah, be an original. All of this stuff. It's like, man, 
everything that we pursue trying to find fulfillment or finding who we are, uh, we actually become less of what we are. We become like animals and beasts until we find Christ. And then he takes us and forms us. Good. Good. Other thoughts? Questions? I still have like 10 minutes, so I'm going to keep talking if you guys don't have questions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, it's a huge question, or the answer—it's a very long and elaborate answer. But the the way to think about prophecy, biblical prophecy, is that when you see something taking place, um, there's there's layers of of meaning, especially when we look back and say, "Oh, this is fulfilled when um, when the exiles came back to Israel." Right? And they were, beginning, they were able to build the, the temple. Like God, God was faithful. He brought them back. He built the temple on Zion. Herod comes, you know, remodels, and it's this huge thing, uh, which is one of the reasons why the disciples were so in awe of it. Do you see this temple? Like, this is part of the fulfillment. And Jesus is saying, yeah, but you don't, you don't get it. The ultimate fulfillment is not here. It's, it's here. Tear this temple down and so on. So you have um, very real historical promises that, that are fulfilled in the temple. And then you have, um, it's kind of like the type and, and reality. So it, it's, it's fulfilled on both levels. There's near and far fulfillments of prophecy. So uh, Isaiah 9, the baby that was born of a virgin and so on. You have that baby being born in chapter 11. And then, but then the New Testament says, no, that's actually talking about Jesus. So you have all of this um, layers, if you would, of that's a very condensed answer. Why did he pull from Jeremiah 31? Yeah, because that, that, new, that promise of the new heart and uh, my law will be in their minds and uh, I will take the heart of stone. Well, that's in Ezekiel, which is a similar passage but I'll write my law on their hearts and all of that, that is all fulfilled in Christ, right? So that doesn't mean that there weren't aspects of that overall prophecy that weren't fulfilled in other aspects, but he's saying this right here, this new covenant, uh, this is now the ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Better promises, exactly, yep. The new covenant has better promises. Good question. Other thoughts?
<laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think I think Eden was destroyed in the flood, probably. So the physical location, I think, is the whole earth died and then was raised to something new afterwards. So I think that the physical location is there. But the model of Eden, Eden is the, the first earthly um, pattern. You want me to, I can draw a picture right now. Let me see here. Pictures are great. So, but you, you, have, you have something very similar with Eden, the tabernacle, and the temple. They're all designed the same way. It's really cool. And each of those designs, according to, to Hebrews, is actually the heavenly design that, so when God planted the garden, which he did, he did it not just randomly, but he did it according to the, the design that is in heaven. Um, and that design looks something like like this. Um, I want to do this in a cool way here. Excuse the poor. All right, so you have, say, the tabernacle. Well, I'll do Eden first, right? So you have the world is out here, right? Then inside the world, you have Eden. So say it's something like this. Then you have inside of Eden the garden, which is the smaller one. And inside of the garden you have, at the center of the garden it says, you have two trees. Okay? This is, that is great, isn't it? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my goodness. This is, this is the, the, the design of, of Eden as it's described in Genesis. Okay? You have, the world was created within the world. He created Eden, inside of Eden, the garden, and then in the midst of the garden, which is in the center of the garden, the two trees. The tabernacle is, is the same way. You have the world out here, then you have the court of the Gentiles, if you would, uh, here, where anybody could go, um, the courtyard. And one of the cool things about the courtyard is there was a water basin that was put right here. So in order to go into the holy place, the priests had to cleanse themselves. Um, and then in the tabernacle, you had another curtain here. And then inside, you had the Ark of the Covenant at the center, right? So this sacramental, this place of worship where God meets with his people. Same way that those two trees acted that way. This is where God would meet with his priests, Adam and Eve. The temple is set up the same way. Uh, and then at the heart of the Old Covenant was the law, right? Which was put inside the Ark of the Covenant, right? The law was put right here. I can't spell it because it's all messed up now. But the law was there. Aaron's rod was there. Some of the manna was there. But the law was, was right there at the heart of their worship. At the very core of the worship of Israel was the law written on stone. So when he says, I'm going to remove the heart of stone in Ezekiel and give you a heart of flesh, we should not think about that in the first instance of we walk around it with hearts of stone. Now, this is very covenantal language of at the heart of your system 
is a heart of stone, the Ten Commandments. That is your heart. I'm going to remove that, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, which ends up being Christ. Okay? One of the really cool things, God is a great architect, because as a temple develops, you have uh, it's a glorified version of the tabernacle. Right? And you have on both sides, you have ten lampstands, well, five on each side. Okay? We have one on this side. You have the ten lampstands in the temple. Okay? You'd also have, you still have the table of showbread. Right? You got the loaves on it. The tabernacle that was, in the tabernacle, there was just one lampstand, which if you were to walk in, it would be, the lampstand would be on this side, and then the table of showbread would be on that side. And then you had the altar of incense, which is here. The smoke would go up and the prayers and so on. Um, you had the water base and all that. So you have uh, the temple set up, and, and when Jesus says that he is the temple, there's actually a lot of, there's a lot of purpose and design to that. Because not only is this the pattern of the heavenly tabernacle and the heavenly temple, but it's also uh, the image in which we were created. Jesus being the ultimate image bearer, but he is also the temple. So there's actually a lot of overlap between the design of the temple and the design of the human body. So if you think about the heart of stone, which was, oh man, I hope we didn't lose that. I'll have to write it all over again. What? All the description. Well, this was like the climax of the moment. So I'm gonna I'm gonna draw it again. You guys just talk amongst yourselves here. That's right. That's right. I'll just do it all with one color. How about that? Ark of the Covenant, right? Holy place. You have the ten. Lampstands. Right, you have the entryway here. You have the water basin here. You have the the golden cherubim that are over here, wings touching, which is really cool. Um, table of showbread. Okay, so Jesus is the temple, and all of that, and and he embodies the temple. So if you just put on a head and arms. I know it sounds goofy, but follow me here. And legs, and even to the, you know, the water, <laughs> where it comes out. It's true. I, I, I'm being honest. Like, this is, this is, not, this is not a coincidence. If, if <laughs> now, this will be funny. Because in, in Ezekiel 47, it starts with a trickle, right? <laughs> and then it becomes this great, this great thing. The four rivers that flow. All, there's, I'm telling you, this. You guys are way too giddy about this. <laughs> but you have the lampstands that actually look like the ribs, right? You have the showbread, which is like the kidneys and all that, which is actually part of the, your stomach where you eat and it fills and all of that, right? We're satisfied in him. And then at the very heart, you have the, the Ark of the Covenant, which had the heart of their worship, which was the heart of stone of the Ten Commandments. 
And then Christ says, or the prophecy is that he will come and he will remove that heart of stone and he'll put in a heart of flesh. Jesus now being the new temple, heart of flesh, not of stone. And we are now brought in and a part of all of that. Yeah, the incense. Good question. I'm not sure. It's the breath. That's right. That's right. That's right. Isn't that cool? Now, this is not a mountain I would die on by any means, but I think it's very intriguing. I think it helps us understand even the way God is a really great architect of things. He knows what he's doing. It's not coincidental. Have you ever guys uh, in design have something called uh, fractals? Anybody familiar with fractals? It's, it's like if you look at a, um, a leaf, right? If you go close, it actually looks like there's a tree inside the leaf, right? So it's design that are built inside of itself. Um, the, 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 sea, uh, the sand on the, sea, on the shore, when the tide goes out and you see the ripples in the sand, it looks like water. Um, trees are just a really good one. Branches, you pull a branch off of a tree and you look at it like, oh, this could be a tree. You know, kids stick them in the ground, so that's a tree. So you have patterns inside of patterns inside of patterns in creation. Fractals are everywhere. Um, there's a book that was written in the early 2000s that's like, People go crazy over fractals and say, look, everything images itself constantly, right? Um, That is God's fingerprint on creation. That's how he works. This should not surprise us that there is a pattern in heaven, and that fractal image comes down to Eden, to the tabernacle, to the temple, even to our own bodies, as we are now what? The temple of the Holy Spirit, right? This this, this goofy-looking thing here should not be surprising to us. This is how God has designed things. Albany. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. Absolutely. He is the temple. That's good. That's a good, good, good direction to go when thinking about that too, kind of to the end where you know that there's that sanctuary that is brought in an eternal state here on earth. Other questions or thoughts? Okay. We are 8.01, so that's good. McNeil went to like 8.20 a couple times, so I feel... <laughs> I'm just going to let me, let me pray and we can leave.